It's one of the first nightmares that I can recall having as a child. I'm out trick-or-treating, my loyal dog Scout is at my side, and we approach a white cottage-style house. I climb the stairs, and as I lift my hand to press the doorbell, the step beneath my feet snaps open. It's a trapdoor, and me and my dog, we fall down a metal chute, and we land in a stony basement. I, I stand up, I turn around. Before me are row after row of these oversized bird cages. Some are empty, but most have at least one child locked inside. The children are, they're bloody, they've been burned, they've been tortured and are in various stages of dying. Most times I would run round and round the basement, unable to find the exit door. Sometimes I hid. Other times I tried to open the cages and release my fellow captives. I never got out, of course. I woke up, but I never escaped the basement. Those, I figure, those are other people's dreams, whereas I, I only have nightmares. Not that I'm being dramatic or anything, but I grew up knowing that there are people in this world that want to kill me, acutely aware of it and trust no one, was already a core tenant of my life long before the X-Files turned it into a catchphrase. It was a warning, not against government actors, though they were not above suspicion, but against pedophiles and kidnappers and other people who, for whatever reason, wanted me dead. At the 4th of July parade one year, Uncle Sam waltzed into the crowd handing out candy, and my grandmother pushed me forward and she tried to get me to take a piece. Didn't she know? People poison candy. People hide sharp objects in their gooey cores. They poison Tylenol and Excedrin. They poison buffets and canned goods. Even men with funny hats, Grandma. Even grandmothers, Grandma. They poison husbands and tenants and children and grandchildren. And trust no one. My grandmother, she was horrified at my behavior. Apologizing profusely, she accepted a brightly colored piece of poison from the unusually tall man, and she dragged me home. My parents, on the other hand, they were oh so proud when they heard the tale, for they had drilled the words stranger, danger, into my brain, and my mother, my mother liked to tell vivid, gruesome tales, like, like the one about the boy at the rest stop. While his father waited, just outside the door, the boy, he was about five, the same age as me at the time, the boy went into the bathroom, and inside there was a man hiding in one of the stalls. This man, he grabbed the boy, he covered his mouth, and he cut off his genitals. And the boy bled to death, right there on the bathroom floor, while his father waited just outside. 
So you see, it can happen just like that, even somewhere that you would think that you'd be safe. That's why you, you pee on the side of the road. And that's why we don't use rest stops. I never had a babysitter because babysitters put kids in hot ovens. We never owned a car with a trunk because kidnappers put people in trunks and leave them in the desert to die. And grandmothers. And mothers. Mothers, too. Mothers go crazy. Mothers stab their own children. And sisters. Some sisters have very pointy canines, and they stay out all night. Some sisters could be vampires laying in wait, biding their time. Anyone, anywhere, for any reason, might kill you someday, and there's only so much you can do about it. And I get it. The world can feel like a dangerous place sometimes, even if you are reluctant to admit it. About one month after a black Labrador led a searcher to 26-year-old Nancy McQuiston's decomposing body, Nancy's friend Loretta testified at the coroner's inquest into her death. Nancy, she said, had mentioned that someone had followed her home from work one day, and she had worried about peeping toms looking through her window at night. So Nancy had taken to carrying a handgun in her purse, and she's quoted as saying, I'm carrying this gun. I'm not really afraid. That quote, it reminded me of something that Margaret Atwood once wrote, that men are afraid that women will laugh at them. Women are afraid that men will kill them. Which doesn't seem well-balanced, does it? The fear that one might might cause your palms to sweat and your face to blush, versus the fear that one might wipe you out of existence. Joanne Kinkelborg was the first of three women to disappear from the mining city of Butte, Montana, on Friday, April 9, 1965. The 17-year-old high school student, and her 22-year-old sister Paulette, had both stayed home from school that day, perhaps to get the house ready for their mother, who had just undergone major surgery and who was expected home from the hospital the very next day. Joanne was already planning to be home that weekend to help care for her as she continued to recuperate. Around lunchtime, Paulette's friend Jerry clocked out of his job as a night shift stock boy, and he swung by the Kinkleborg residence. Not long after his arrival, Joanne asked if she could take his car out for a spin. Jerry agreed, and around noontime, the pair took off down Aluminum Avenue. Joanne, thinking that she would only be gone for a short while, had left her purse, her coat, and everything else except for the clothes on her back behind. An hour or so later, Jerry dropped Joanne about a block from home. Then he swung by the house again to get Paulette. Though Jerry and Paulette may have dated at one time, they had settled into being no more than close friends. And Jerry, 
who was a, a tall and athletic playboy of sorts, already had a date with yet another woman lined up for later that evening. So he and Paulette, they drove around for a while, then he took her back home. That same evening, a woman named Kathleen Kennedy was going door-to-door -door collecting money for a cancer charity when she spotted her neighbor, Marjorie McQuiston. Not that this was anything unusual or any great feat, as the two women's houses were so close together that Kathleen could look through her own window and easily see into Marjorie's kitchen. At around 6.30 p.m., Marjorie's daughter, Nancy, took a call from her friend Loretta. Then the two women presumably sat down for what, as it turned out, would be their last meal. When Kathleen next looked towards the house, the curtains were closed, and sometime early Saturday morning, the lights in the house went out. Meanwhile, to the south of the McQuiston home, Joanne's curfew came and went, and as word got around that she was missing, family and friends gathered at the Kinkleborg residence, where they barely slept, the gauzy, anxious feeling fixed in news reports where Paulette and Joanne's father, Andy, detail the many reasons as to why Joanne was not your typical teenage runaway. That is, as to why everyone else, like them, should worry and should continue to search for Joanne. And that weekend, men on horseback plowed through snowdrifts and they scoured the rocky landscape for the girl who had not run away. Then on Monday, a woman named Betty Callahan stepped from her house and she looked across her yard to her neighbor's front steps. And she frowned. Had, had anyone seen Nancy? What about Marjorie? The two women, they often went away for the weekend, so Betty hadn't given it a second thought when the house had remained shuttered and when Saturday's mail and newspapers accumulated outside. But, but now it was Monday, and they still hadn't picked up their mail. So Betty went inside, and she telephoned Nancy's aunt, Lorraine, who gave her permission to enter the house. Betty didn't have a key, so she enlisted the help of yet another neighbor named John Hollow, and together they crawled through an easy-to-open bathroom window. They, they looked around, but they really saw nothing out of the ordinary. In the meantime, Lorraine called the Butte-Silverbow County Sheriff's Department, and two deputies performed a quick and superficial check of the residence, but likewise, they found no obvious cause for concern. Another relative called the sheriff's office that evening, and deputies were again dispatched to the house on Tuesday morning. This time, however, they located a woman's blood-soaked belt on the curb just outside the residence. They would go on to find more blood throughout the house and a kitchen door that was riddled with bullet holes. The perpetrator, whoever that was, had ransacked the house, but they had left Nancy's twenty-two caliber pistol, 
the one that was meant to protect her from stalkers and window peepers, they had left that behind. Missing, however, was Nancy's vehicle, a tan 1960 Ford Comet, which she usually parked in the garage, and more importantly, of course, so were the two women. The search for Joanne Kinkelborg was still ongoing, and authorities now mounted a second effort to find the missing McQuistons. The first clue as to their whereabouts came late Tuesday evening when four boys found Nancy's billfold near the Alice Mine Pit, which is located about half a mile north of Nancy's house. It contained her identification and numerous photographs, but it had been cleaned out of any money. However, this clue later proved to be a red herring, as detectives would learn that Nancy had actually lost the wallet a week or two before she went missing, and it was likely unrelated to her disappearance. Unbeknownst to detectives, a similar clue that could have led them to Nancy and Marjorie had been found three days prior. Between noon and 3 p.m. on Saturday, April 10th, Wesley J. Reka was out for a walk when he found a purse on the side of the road. Papers, including a state liquor license, were scattered near the purse, and they bore the name of Nancy McQuiston. Unaware that the women were missing, Wesley did not report his discovery until Wednesday afternoon, and by this time, their bodies had already been discovered. Robert Hennison followed his dog who was a 16-month-old Labrador named Major, to the top of a hill that was located near the old Walkerville City dump. The agitated dog sniffed the ground, and he led his handler to a shallow ditch. There, wrapped in a sheet and a piece of carpet which had been cut from the McQuiston home, lay the bodies of Nancy and Marjorie McQuiston. The coroner quickly arrived, and he was able to determine, just by looking at the women, that they had each been shot, at least once, and they had other injuries that appeared to be consistent with having been beaten by a person using their fist. In, in a rather bizarre twist of fate, Robert Hennison, the man who owned the dog that had found the bodies, would also be shot and killed just four months later during an argument with a man over a piece of furniture. There was no sign of Nancy's car at the site, but as investigators fanned out, they located the vehicle at the bottom of a 15-foot gully. Based on bloodstains found in the car, it appeared their killer had loaded the two women into the vehicle, one in the back seat and one in the trunk, then deposited them in the ditch, then this person had driven the car up a winding and seldom-used road that ascends a hill which is known as the Big M, where they, of course, abandoned it. A Sheriff Bill Dolling, who was in charge of the investigation, described the site as an out-of-the-way location that suggested that the suspect knew the area well, which... I feel he could have made that same statement about any location in Uptown Butte. For anyone out there who has navigated the old city's twisting roads and crisscrossing alleys, 
can attest that they appear to have been constructed without rhyme or reason, and natives and non-natives alike get turned around in the dusty labyrinth. It is possible that the killer had intended to transport them to a different location and take off with the car, but investigators found a large pool of transmission fluid on Nancy's garage floor. This indicated that her car was badly damaged and it couldn't have been driven very far, so it's quite possible that the killer was forced to come up with a different plan on the fly. As autopsies on the McQuistons got underway, attention turned again to 17-year-old Joanne Kinkelborg. Even after the other two bodies were found, teams of men had continued to comb the area between Pipestone and Homestake, which was a lover's lane in 1965, and they looked for the teenager well past dark before calling it quits for the night. With all that had happened, news that the police already had a suspect in Joanne's disappearance in custody had gone largely unnoticed. Early on Tuesday morning, as in 1.35 a.m. early, officers had awoken Jerry Van Newland, who was the athletic playboy and the last known person to have seen Joanne alive, and they had hauled him into the police station. While in custody, Jerry had admitted that during their drive, he had given Joanne a couple of sips off a bottle of wine that he'd had in the car. Thus, officers were able to book him for contributing to the delinquency of a minor, but their real aim, of course, was to hold him for further questioning in her disappearance. Efforts to find Joanne resumed on Thursday, and Ed Dawes and Steve Knudsen were among a group of Joanne's classmates who had volunteered to help authorities scour Thompson Park. Wading into an overgrown area near Roosevelt Drive, which lay about 14 miles southeast of Butte, they found a sock, which, I mean, it's a sock. For anyone who's ever been out hiking, there are plenty of socks and keychains and other knickknacks to be found. But this sock, found in the context of a girl gone missing, this was more than a sock. This was a clue. Accounts differ as to exactly what happened next, but... As best I can tell, the boys were about to move on when another member of the team suggested that they go and check in a culvert under a nearby bridge. And there, as many of you have already guessed, Ed and Steve found Joanne's body, face down in the slow-moving waters of Nine Mile Creek. They ran to the nearest telephone, and they called the police station, and Assistant Police Chief Robert Russell got in his car and he raced to the scene. More officers soon arrived, and when they pulled Joanne's body from the creek and rolled her over, several of them reportedly gasped at what had been done to her, and one was overheard to say, "'This guy's a real sadist.'" Like the McQuistons, Joanne had been beaten, finger marks still visible on her arm. 
There were also deep cuts about her mouth, but that wasn't the thing that had made them gasp. But her killer had taken a broken wine bottle, which was later found under a nearby pine tree, and had made a deep cut which started at Joanne's stomach and went all the way up to her neck. Then this person had slashed her throat, the latter wound had punctured Joanne's jugular, and she had bled out. Officers transported ladies' man Jerry Van Newland to the scene, and they led him, in handcuffs, to her body. Someone lifted the blanket which they had used to cover Joanne, and Jerry reportedly looked down at her, then away, then he turned back towards the police car. And later that night, Jerry confessed to the murder, to slashing her throat and stripping her naked, then dragging her body to the creek. Afterwards, he had gone to a service station, thrown away his floor mats, and cleaned the blood from his car. Then he had gone back to the Kinkleborg residence, like nothing had happened, and he picked up Joanne's sister Paulette. So, so there it was. Not a surprise, except maybe for how easily Jerry had leapt from all-American boy to vicious killer and then back again. It takes a certain, a certain coldness, I would think, to slit a child's throat, then take her sister for a ride in the same car, sitting in the same spot where he had murdered her sister not more than an hour before. So Jerry was a prick. That much is clear. But what about the McQuistons? Had Jerry killed them as well? Nancy and Jerry had grown up together in Butte's Meterville district, and they had gone to the same high school. She was one year ahead of him, and he was apparently a basketball star. And, as the newspapers pointed out, similarities did exist between the two crimes, such as all three victims had been beaten before being killed, but, I mean, really, how many victims are beaten during the course of being murdered? That's hardly proof of a connection. The Billings Gazette did report that all three women were bound at the feet. However, this is the only place where this piece of information appears in print, and I'm very uncertain as to its reliability. Jerry did take a lie detector test, which came back as inconclusive, and Sheriff Dolling said that he had planned to have Jerry take the test again, but I was unable to find out if this had actually occurred. There's no other exculpatory information in the newspapers, such as whether Jerry had kept his date for a Friday night, or how long it had lasted, or whether he had an alibi for the time of Nancy and Marjorie's murder. What I can say is that after April of 1965, Jerry's name is rarely mentioned in connection with the McQuiston case, except to point out the gruesome oddity that three Butte women were murdered on the same day. Detectives also interrogated at least one other suspect. A man who the newspapers never identified was subjected to 30 hours of questioning, but he was released after he, too, passed his lie detector test. 
As the medical examiner finished autopsying the McQuiston's bodies, they concluded that Marjorie had sustained a gunshot wound to the shoulder and another to her right temple, which fractured her skull and exited through her right ear. The second shot would have killed her almost instantly. Based on an analysis of the partially digested food in her stomach, Marjorie had died at around 11 p.m. or midnight, assuming that she had last eaten around 7 p.m. Like her mother, Nancy had two gunshot wounds, one to her hand and the other to the back of her head. The coroner determined that Nancy had likely survived for at least an hour after being shot, and she could have still been alive when the killer placed her in the ditch beside the Big M, which is just... I mean, like I said, I have nightmares. I have those nightmares where your limbs feel heavy, too heavy to move, and where time accelerates, where you're barreling down a hill through a guardrail, and you can see that you're about to crash, but... You can't stop it, and you can't save anyone else, and you're helpless. And it's, it's that feeling, that frustrating feeling, that... Anyhow, even if the gunshot wound didn't immediately kill Nancy, I hope that it incapacitated her, and that she wasn't conscious and aware aware that her mother was already dead and that she herself was slowly dying. I've heard it said that the motive for murder can be condensed into lust, love, loathing, and loot. So, who had motive to kill Nancy and Marjorie, who hated them, adored them, hungered for them, who wanted something from them? The newspapers provided next to no information about the McQuistons' personal lives. The family said they were well-liked, but families tend to say that after a loved one has died. At the time of the murder, Marjorie had been divorced from Nancy's father, Harry Robert McQuiston, for only about 18 months but they had not lived together for a whopping 25 years, or about one year after Nancy's birth. Harry was living in Los Angeles at the time, and he would actually die there about three years after the murders in December of 1968, age just 54. Nancy, too, had been married uh, to a man named William J. Keeley Jr., their marriage service had taken place in February of 1960, but the marriage was annulled just eight months later in October of that same year, on the grounds that William had, quote, misrepresented his intentions regarding the marriage and religion. I have absolutely no idea what that means, but apparently it was bad. I can't speak as to how or if Nancy's death affected William, but it appears that the young man did suffer a strain of, I don't know if you would call it a bad luck necessarily, but in August of 1965, he lost control of his car and crashed into an old pole plant 
just south of Butte, but he walked away with nothing but a few cuts and scrapes. Then three months later, William also died on November 13th of 1965 while he was in San Jose, California. He was only 31 years old at the time, but his death does appear to have been from natural causes. And that's really all that the papers had to say about the women's romantic relationships. And as for whether a sexual assault was a motive for the crime, well, that's where things get a little bit fuzzy. First off, let me preface this next part by saying that because I base the bulk of my research on daily newspapers, I spend a lot of time sorting through inconsistencies and errors that make their way to print as the story breaks and updates are still coming in as more facts become known. It's, it's a mess and I piece it together as best I can, and I make judgment calls about what to include and what to leave out and how to best tell the story. And I'm sure there are plenty of things that I miss, so I don't judge others too harshly. Though Nancy's body was clad only in a brassiere, while Marjorie was partially clothed in a bra and a dress, which I guess had been ripped and draped over her body. The coroner stated that neither woman's body showed evidence of sexual assault, and Sheriff Dolling is quoted as saying that the killer is not a rapist, he's a sadist. Flash forward three years to April of 1968, and a Sheriff Cunningham, who was Dolling's replacement, told the Montana Standard that, in fact, one of the victims, he declined to say which, had been sexually assaulted. He said that the Sheriff's Office had withheld that information back in 1965, but Cunningham now believed that it was suitable to release it to the public. The article did not elaborate beyond that. Flash forward again to 2005, when the Montana Standard revisited the then 40-year-old cold case in an article where they once again stated that Nancy and Marjorie's bodies had shown no indication of having been sexually abused. Now, I'm not sure where the reporter gleaned this information, whether it was from the 1965 clippings, or whether the detective now assigned to the case, a man named Butch Harrington, had told the reporter as much. So, I'll let you take from that mess whatever you will. But if not loathing or love or lust, the only motive we have left is loot, which seems like the least likely motive of them all. Though the house was in disarray, as far as I know, the killer didn't actually take anything of value besides the car. And the McGlone Heights neighborhood where the women lived was hardly a burglar's paradise. It was funded on modest incomes, and the houses were so densely packed together that, as I mentioned before, neighbors could easily see into each other's windows. 
and a quick browse through the Montana Standard tells me that while residents occasionally reported things like vandalism and horses trampling gardens, burglaries either rarely happened or they possibly went unreported. As for Nancy's gun, which, as you'll recall, the killer left behind, back in 1965, the sheriff's office shipped over 150 pieces of evidence to the FBI laboratory for forensic testing. This included six guns. One was a dismantled but otherwise functional 22 caliber shotgun found in a dumpster near the McQuiston home. Another, of course, was Nancy's 22 caliber pistol. According to the coroner's inquest and other newspaper accounts from 1965, the FBI determined that none of the six weapons tested had been used to kill Marjorie and Nancy. Though technicians couldn't connect the bullets to a specific gun, the FBI lab thought the bullets had been fired by a Harrington Richardson pistol which was apparently known as a suicide gun because it could be bought almost anywhere, including mail-order houses. However, in 1968, the FBI updated their assessment and said that a twenty-two caliber Ruger automatic had most likely fired the shots that had killed the two women. So, once again, going back to that 2005 article from the Montana Standard, this would be the same article that had contradicted Sheriff Cunningham in saying that there was no evidence that the two women were sexually assaulted. This 2005 article also states that Nancy's gun is thought to have been the murder weapon, and as with the sexual assault, I don't know where the reporter got that information or whether it's accurate. It matters, not only because a gun other than Nancy's could link a specific killer to the crime, but because if the killer brought the gun with them, it suggests they went to the house with the intent to murder Nancy and or Marjorie, and makes it more likely that they knew one or both of them. And in a case such as this, where so little is known about the perpetrator, every morsel of information could help to identify them, or it could prove to be a useless distraction. As I was reading about this case, other names and other crimes flitted in and out of the narrative, while reporters and the public speculated as to whether the McQuiston case could be linked to these other cases, such as that of Carolyn Neely, who was a young woman who was also shot to death in her trailer in Bozeman, Montana, which is a college town about an hour and a half drive east of Butte. This occurred in August of 1964. Four months later, on December 23rd, a woman named Roberta Clark had traveled to Bozeman, Montana once again, and her body was later found on the side of the road about 20 miles outside of the city limits. It appeared that she had been severely beaten, then run down as she attempted to flee. 
Uh, Six years later, prosecutors actually did charge a man named Archie Warwick with Roberta Clark's murder after it came to light that he had told a hunting buddy that he had killed Roberta. He was convicted and sentenced to life, but the Montana Supreme Court overturned that conviction. He was retried in 1973, and this time he was actually acquitted of the crime. So, as with Carolyn and Nancy and Marjorie, Roberta's case remains unsolved to this day. Now, because these four murders occurred around the same time and in the same general area, and they all involved women being beaten or shot or both, there was quite a bit of speculation that the crimes were connected. Better to have one madman on the loose than three, four if you count Jerry Van Newland, or five or six. On April 22nd, 1965, that would be a little more than a week after the three Butte women were killed, three more women were attacked, once again not in Butte, but about a two-hour drive to the northwest, this time in Missoula, Montana. A 20-year-old Patsy Zeiler was taking a bath when a man broke into her house through the back door and then came into the bathroom. He tossed a cloth over Patsy's head, and he tried to hold her underwater. When that wasn't working out, he hauled Patsy from the tub knocked her head against a wall, and threw her to the floor where he started to kick her. This commotion, it drew the attention of Patsy's housemates, and the attacker fled as they came to her aid. Next, a Margaret Magler, aged just 17, noticed that the front door to her home was partly open, and as she moved to close it, a man pushed open the door, grabbed her, and dragged her from the house. He beat Margaret and attempted to rip off her robe, but her screams brought a neighbor, and once again the assailant fled. Finally, the same man attempted to break into another woman's home at around 11.30 p.m., but he was unable to gain entry. Though their attacker was never apprehended, a man, a man who the newspapers never name, but whose mother apparently lived on the same block as one of the women who was attacked, the papers don't say which one, was brought in by the Missoula police on an unrelated charge. However, as officers questioned this man, he indicated he had knowledge, not of the Missoula attacks and not of Nancy or Marjorie's murders but of a Carolyn Neely and Roberta Clark's murders. But, as far as I know, nothing ever came of this information. It's, it's irresistible, I think, to keep looking, that is, because in the back of your mind there's always this notion that you might be the clever little duck to find the answer that you'll you'll open the next article and you'll read how some peeping tom was arrested a couple of towns over and you'll recognize his name wasn't that the neighbor the friend one of the searchers that someone that no one ever suspected who seemed so so nice and normal and and could that be the guy 
and the endorphins hit your brain and you want more. So you type Mr. Peeping Tom's name into the search engine and you start clicking and linking every article, address, wife, ex-wife, everything you can find about this person. Because, maybe because no matter how bad you are at everything else, you found this one thing. And this, this you can definitely solve. You just need one more piece. So, I expanded my search beyond the confines of the McQuiston newspaper articles for attacks, rapes, break-ins, burglaries, or other crimes that might have something in common with the murders. A babysitter, a Peggy Ann Olson, beaten to death in 1970, at first blush looks like a promising lead, until I turn the page, and I learn that the 15-year-old boy she was looking after is the one who killed her. So I set Peggy aside, and I move on to the next. And I run into Danette Neary, a 20-year-old Butte girl who was murdered by a rapist named Charles Lawrence Beck, and whose body would also be found on Roosevelt Drive, not far from where Jerry had left Joanne's body. And there were more. There were so, so many more that it was, it was overwhelming. I find it amusing when we, you, me, the consumers of true crime culture, when we watch one of these documentaries where all of the pieces are laid out nice and neat for us and where the story already has an end, and we can look at it with the benefit of hindsight and benefit from someone else's legwork. We are told which pieces of information are important and which can be discarded, and we find it very easy to say, my God, how, how could you have missed that? And it's because for every piece that fits, there are dozens, if not hundreds, of close fits and red herrings to discard along the way. It is the epitome of frustration, I think, to have so much and yet. In May of 1965, just a month after the murders, a Sheriff Dolling told reporters that he had several people under surveillance and that the case was developing. That was 55 years ago, and time, as they say, time is running out. Think of it this way. Say the McQuiston's attacker was a mere a 20 years old at the time of the offense. That would make them about 75 today. The average life expectancy for a person in the United States is a mere 78.5 years, and the likelihood that this person is still alive diminishes with every passing year. Not only that, but witnesses age. Their memories fail, and they, too, die. Evidence deteriorates, and new rabbit holes open beneath our feet, new nightmares and new projects, and the world simply moves on. In 1981, and again in 1990, then-Sheriff Bob Butorovich said that from time to time he would reread parts of the McQuiston file and he would wonder about the case. 
He had plans to re-examine the hundreds of pieces of evidence, everything from official statements and autopsies to the bullet-ridden door that had been saved from the McQuiston home, that were all locked in a corner room at the sheriff's office. He had also wanted to get Crime Stoppers, or the popular NBC series at the time, Unsolved Mysteries, to do a segment on the case, but that never came to pass. Butorovich said what they really needed was someone to come forward with information. Then, maybe, they could finally solve this case. Detective Butch Harrington took up the investigation in 2005. He said that one of the most time-consuming tasks was reading old reports, and he had gone so far as to take most of the case files home so that he could read them at night. Barbara Clark, one of Marjorie's three surviving daughters, had hoped that scientific advancements like DNA would do for them what it had done for dozens of other families tethered to cold cases, but she had come to terms with the fact that she might never know who had taken her mother and her sister from her. Like Sheriff Dolling, Detective Harrington thought that the killer knew one or both of the women— because of the careful way that the bodies had been laid out and covered. Six years later, in 2011, Detective Harrington said that he was still working on the case, and he did hope to one day give the family an answer. Joanne's killer, Gerald Van Newland, was paroled in 1980 at age 40, after being in prison for only 15 years which is less time than Joanne's total number of years spent alive on Earth. In granting his parole, the board considered his exemplary prison record, he had not been cited once, not even for a minor infraction, and stressors in his personal life, which, Jerry said, had led him to kill Joanne. According to Jerry, his marriage had broken up a year before the murder, at which time he had also lost his daughter and his job, though he was, of course, employed at the time of the murder. He said he had been drinking heavily and that he had no one to talk to about his problems, and that prior to the murder he had been in several barroom fights. Of the killing, Jerry said that he had got mad. He was in a total rage. He said that he was trying to kill something that had a hold of his life, not Joanne. While in prison, Jerry had worked in the slaughterhouse, and he was asked during the parole hearing if working there had prevented him from becoming violent. He replied that this contention was absurd, and I'm inclined to agree. He said that he had been in prison for five years before working there, and during that time, and he had not become violent once. Jerry planned to move to Louisiana and to remarry his ex-wife. That would be the same ex-wife he had split with just before Joanne's murder. So I guess she's an understanding woman. And to take a job on an oil rig. I find one of the statements made by the parole board interesting, mostly because I feel it is at odds with our current notions and practices around sentencing and parole. The board members, quote, 
agreed that men can be kept only so long in prison, and it was their job to return the prisoner to society if they believed that he was able to adjust. It can be kept only so long.